Well, in the gospel, according to John, as Jesus is praying to the Father for his disciples, of course, for you and for me, he says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. John 17, 15 through 18. So as, as followers of Jesus Christ, we've been sent into the world for a specific purpose, and as such, we're supposed to be different, different than everyone else in the world who does not follow Jesus Christ, at least that is according to Jesus himself. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And if you read the Apostle Paul's letters to the churches, you will find that he often refers to himself as being set apart for the gospel, meaning different, okay? We're, we're supposed to be different, not full of ourselves because of who we are, but full of Christ because of who he is and what he's done for us. We're supposed to be different, not, uh, not arrogant because of our righteousness, but humble because of his righteousness in us. You see, we're, we're supposed to be different, not pointing people to ourselves because of what we're doing for others, but pointing people to Christ because of what he wants to do for them, okay, this world uh, is all about self. Look at me, look at us, look at what we're doing, right? But the church is supposed to be different, you and me. Every motivation of our hearts, every word we speak, every action we take is supposed to point people to Jesus. The great 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon said it this way, God has set apart his people from before the foundation of the world to be his chosen and peculiar inheritance. We're sanctified in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit when he subdues our corruptions, imparts to us grace, and leads us onward in the divine walk of life of faith. Christian men are not to be used for anything but God. They're set apart people. They are vessels of mercy. They are not for the devil's use, not for their own use, not for the world's use, but for the master's use. He has made them on purpose to be used entirely, solely, and wholly for him. Okay, as, as followers of Christ, we're supposed to be different. And nowhere should those differences show up more than in times of trouble. Why? Because it is in troubled times that people are more likely to look for answers to what ails the human condition. It is most often in troubled times that people seek after truth, and it is in troubled times that people are most open to receive help from others. It is an historical statistical fact that the greatest periods of growth for the church of Jesus Christ down through the ages have been during troubled times, times of persecution, times of famine, times of suffering, times of great uncertainty. That is when the church most often experiences exponential growth and revival. I've cited the research here many times before because when people are uncertain about their future and yet they see a church of people who are acting and reacting differently than the rest of the world to those same events, then what we have and who we are takes on a whole new relevance for those who are without Christ. 
And yet if our response to times of trouble is exactly the same as the rest of the world, panic, selfishness, cynicism, hopelessness, well then, uh, then why would anyone bother to look to the church for answers? No, we're supposed to be different which is a lesson a, a woman named Hannah had to learn, as we'll see in our story today as we continue our sermon series, working our way through the book of 1 Samuel, where this young woman who was distraught over her own times of trouble, specifically her barrenness, her inability to have children, and the shame and ridicule that came along with that at the time, she had become uh, desperately hopeless, bitter in fact, until God revealed his plan for her life. And through that revelation, Hannah learned how the people of God are supposed to respond in times of trouble. And I've been, I've been praying this week that her story would inform us, but more than that, that it, that it would help us, in fact, to respond to our own story as we experience times of trouble today in a way, listen, uh, in a way that would be different than the rest of the world a way that would draw lost people to Christ, hurting people to healing and broken people to wholeness, even in their own times of trouble, because that is what we have been set apart for. So let's turn there now together to the book of 1 Samuel. We'll pick the story up where we left off last week, right at chapter 2. And we're just going to work through the first 11 verses of that chapter today, which is known as Hannah's prayer or Hannah's song, because it is a powerful and timely message about how the people of God are to respond in times of trouble. And just to set the stage before we read, in case you missed the story in chapter 1 last week, Hannah, the first wife of a prominent man named Elkanah, was unable to have children, which was a profound source of shame and dishonor for women in ancient Semitic cultures. And to make matters worse, Elkanah marries a second wife who bears him many children, both sons and daughters, and this second wife, a woman named Peninnah, continually mocks Hannah for being barren to the point that Hannah becomes hopelessly desperate for a child until through her pleading and waiting for years, she commits to God that if he will give her a son, she will dedicate him back to God with a Nazarite vow, which, which actually was God's plan for Samuel, Hannah's son, all along. Hannah just had to get there before he would give her a child. And so at the end of chapter one, Hannah does just that. After having Samuel, she takes him up to the temple and leaves him with the high priest to live in service to the temple, to the high priest, and ultimately to God. And we know from later on in this chapter that Hannah went on to have many more children, both sons and daughters. And so through all of that, Hannah not only comes to understand God's will for her son, Samuel's life, but she comes to understand God's will for her own life, as we'll see in this song, which so beautifully expresses what Hannah has learned about how the people of God are to respond again in times of trouble and how different that response is from the rest of the world. So let's read it together. First Samuel chapter two, we'll begin with uh, verse one. And Hannah prayed and said, my heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. So right after she drops her three-year-old child off at the temple to be raised by the high priest, Hannah sings a prayer of praise to God. In fact, if you read the last verse of chapter one, just as she drops Samuel off at the temple, that last verse says, and he worshiped 
the Lord there, while several other versions, maybe some of yours say, and they worshiped the Lord there with uh, the Qumran, actually the Dead Sea Scrolls, indicating that it was Hannah who was actually the one who worshiped the Lord there. And so it's generally accepted that it was the entire family worshiping the Lord there together as they dropped Samuel off at the temple, which is where this song comes from. You understand, this is the worship that they were offering to God that day at the temple, this very song, which in and of itself is remarkable. If you think about leaving your own child to be raised by someone else, and then in that moment, as you drop him off, you're immediately worshiping God about it. But you see, Hannah had learned that God had a plan for her life and for her son's life, even in times of trouble, and that it was a good plan for her and for her son. And so she composes this beautiful song of prayer and praise, which, by the way, is the model for Mary's song in Luke 1, 46 through 55, as the two songs are, are very close, uh, many similarities in their content, not to mention the circumstances under which they were both composed are very similar as well. And, and then at the other end of this epic narrative of First and Second Samuel are the two songs of David in Second Samuel 22 and 23, which along with uh, Hannah's song here together, the, these three songs create a, a literary uh, framework around the entire narrative of First and Second Samuel. They, they bookend this entire grand story. And so uh, this is not only a very important song for Hannah at the time, it is also historically and theologically a very important passage of Scripture in the overall uh, salvation story of God's people. And so with that in mind, she opens the prayer with these words. My heart exalts in the Lord. So again, on the very day Hannah makes the biggest sacrifice of her life, her heart exalts in the Lord. You see, she's learning how to respond to God even in difficult times, right? And, and I, no matter how you spin it, there's no way, right? Even knowing this was God's will, there is no way leaving your little boy at the tabernacle never to live at home with you again. There's no way that was easy for her to do. And yet Hannah says, my heart exalts in the Lord. That word exalt, alats in the ancient Hebrew means rejoice or even triumph. So this is actually a victory cry from Hannah. Well, why? Why is she rejoicing? because of what God has done for her. She's recalling what God has done and rejoicing, even claiming victory, as we'll see in a moment, over her enemies because of what he has done in her life, even in the midst of very difficult circumstances. And then she says, my horn is exalted in the Lord. The word horn was a symbol of strength, and yet more specifically, it was frequently used in ancient Hebrew literature, including biblical literature, as a metaphor for victory. So again, Hannah's very clearly, she's claiming a victory here over her enemies uh, at the very beginning of this song. And then she goes on to say, my mouth derides my enemies, which was a figure of speech, rakab in the Hebrew, which literally means is enlarged over, or, or my mouth is enlarged. It was a figure of speech that represented the defeat of one's enemy by swallowing him whole. Okay, so when Hannah says, my mouth derides my enemies. She's not saying I'm gloating over my enemies. No, she's saying my mouth, my words, specifically my testimony 
as I recall what God has just done for me, those words of testimony defeat the power of my enemies. When I tell of what God has done in my life, it shuts the mouths of my enemies and swallows up their accusations against me because I rejoice in your salvation. And listen, she's not just talking about uh, her eternal salvation. No, she's very specifically referring to God saving her from being barren. You see, Hannah, as she praises God for what he's done for her in her life already, her enemies and specifically their claims against her, they're swallowed up in her praise. This was the first big lesson that Hannah had to learn about how God's people should respond in times of trouble. Listen, if you want to shut the mouth of your enemy, then recall what God has done for you. Do you understand uh, the moment? The moment Hannah began praising God for what he'd done for her by saying it out loud and praising him for it. In that moment, Peninnah, the second wife uh, who made a living mocking Hannah, who was surely there, by the way, she was there with the rest of the family that day as Hannah was singing this song. All of a sudden, Peninnah had nothing more to say to Hannah. You understand, her criticism, her accusations, her condemnation was swallowed up in Hannah's praise report, in her testimony about what God had just done in her life, namely giving her a son who would live out his life in the service of God and become one of the most revered and distinguished men of God in all of human history. You see, if you want to shut the mouth of the enemy in your life, his criticisms, his accusations, the condemnation he's constantly trying to level and leverage against you, your first response is always to begin praising God for what he has already done in your life. You recall what God has already done for you, which shuts the mouth of the enemy because he cannot argue with results. He cannot argue with what God has already accomplished in your life. I'm telling you, if you want to silence the accusing voice of the enemy, you begin recalling all of the good things that God has already done in you and for you. In fact, praise him for it in the face of your enemy and you will find that voice of accusation fading into silence. Our problem is we usually do the opposite. We recall what God has forgotten and we forget what he wants us to remember, right? We dwell on what we've done more than we dwell on what he has done. And then we wonder why we have so much anxiety. Well, look, as long as your focus is on yourself and the mistakes you've made and your own abilities or lack of ability to overcome those mistakes, well, then you probably should be worried because left to our own devices, we'll come up short every time, which is precisely what our enemy wants us to focus on, ourselves, our mistakes, and our inability apart from Christ to become what God says each one of us is capable of becoming. And as a result, we dwell in our past, we focus on our shortcomings, and we live in defeat and fear of the unknown before us. Yet the prophet Micah wrote, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. 
He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Micah 7, uh, 18 and 19. Psalm 103, 12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Listen, it's time you stopped remembering what God has forgotten. Stop remembering what God has forgotten and instead start recalling what he has done in your life. That's how you shut the mouth of the accuser. You remind him of exactly what God has already done in your life because I'm telling you, the proof is in the pudding, baby. The enemy can't argue with all the things God has already done for you. And by recalling those things and then praising God for them, the enemy's accusations are swallowed up in your testimony. Don't believe me. Listen to what the Apostle John says in Revelation 12, 10, and 11. I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. Satan is conquered in your life by the blood of the lamb and by the word of your testimony. Okay, if you're living in fear today, if you feel defeated, if, if the constant news cycle has you wound up in knots, it's time to begin praising God by recalling all that he's already done in your life. And I'm telling you, if you will testify to what God has done, you will stop being afraid of an uncertain future and begin to look forward to all that he has yet to do in your life. You will also find that the voice of the accuser and the fear and anxiety that comes with it, you will find that being silenced in your life. Ghanaian theologian and pastor Mensa Audeville said, God wants us to remember the good things he's done for us in the past. He wants us to remember his promises, his power, and the awesomeness of his deliverance. He wants us to keep his word in front of us at all times. Why do we need to remember? Because we easily forget that our God is a mighty God. Let's keep reading verses 2 through 8. There's none holy like the Lord, for there's none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren is born seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life he brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. And so as Hannah continues to sing her song, she issues a warning to the proud, the arrogant, the boastful. Keep in mind, uh, Peninnah, full of herself, who has been mocking Hannah for years, is standing there, no doubt squirming in her sandals while this song of praise is being sung by Hannah. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. 
For the Lord is the God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, and the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. This, this is a harsh rebuke of those people, including those who claim to be God's people, by the way, who are arrogant, full of themselves, and ready to judge everyone around them in times of trouble, which I'm just telling you we have plenty of today, just as they did then. And listen, the truth is, Hannah was humble enough at this point in her own life to actually include herself in this warning because she finally understood that it was actually God who was responsible ultimately for everything that had happened to her. You see, Hannah knew now that she was barren because the Lord had closed her womb. According to 1 Samuel 1, 6, she knew it was God alone who set her low and it was God alone who brought her high. And as a result, she was finally able to see God's hand in all of it and then to humble herself in the process. She said, the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. Okay, the, the second key in how we should respond in times of trouble is to recognize who is really in control and then humble yourself. Because listen, if you don't humble yourself, well, then God will. He will humble you. And I can just tell you, it is far better to humble yourself than to wait for him to do it. Okay, Peninnah was married to a prominent Hebrew man, a Levite. She was blessed in her marriage, blessed in her position, blessed in her status and blessed in her possessions, all the children she had. She could have humbled herself at any point and treated Hannah with compassion and dignity and honor, but she chose instead to be arrogant, confusing her many blessings with God's approval of her bad behavior, which is exactly what far too many Christians do today. And look where it got her. Here she stands in public rebuke as this family openly worships at the tabernacle. She was disgraced and soon to be forgotten, right? How many women do you know today named Penina? Right? I don't know any. But like Ruth, you don't have to look far to meet a woman named Hannah today. We have about 50 of them in our own church. A few thousand years, by the way, after this story. Okay, don't confuse the blessings in your life with God's approval of bad behavior. And by all means, please don't wait for him to humble you because he will, which is why the apostle Paul said, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect for by the grace given to me I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think but to think with sober judgment each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned Romans 12 2 and 3 all right there I'll just tell you there, there's something about times of trouble that brings out the best in some people and the worst in others 
I watch professing Christians nearly every day eat each other alive on social media. In just the last week, I've watched numerous Christians bashing other churches for going to online streaming because of this virus, and yet other Christians bash those who refuse to go to online streaming. Are you kidding me? I've seen Christians criticizing pastors for posting online devotionals each day since all this started, and others mocking those who have no online presence at all. Honestly, what is wrong with us? What message are we sending to the rest of the world when the best we can come up with in a time of real trouble is to take jabs at each other in public forums? I'm telling you, we'd better humble ourselves before he does. There are masses of people, masses of people all around us who are scared, who are sick. Some are confused about what to do next. Some are desperate for answers, and many are lost without Christ. And the best we've got is to criticize each other. It is the very height of hubris, arrogance, and we should be ashamed of ourselves if we've engaged in it because I'm telling you, pride has no place among the people of God. And if we don't deal with it ourselves, well, then he will. Don't confuse God's blessings in your life with his approval of your bad behavior. We must humble ourselves before him and before a watching world, especially in times of trouble, because you understand focusing on anything other than Jesus Christ in times of trouble is presumptive at best and grossly arrogant at worst. I hear a lot about conspiracy theories these days and who's ultimately responsible for all of this. Well, I hope you understand there is a great conspiracy and it belongs to God. He is the great conspirator, the one who's working all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So let's stop criticizing each other and instead start giving credit to the only one who truly knows what's going on behind the scenes and what's going to happen in the future and is the only one in control and then humble ourselves before him and before one another in times of trouble so that we can be a catalyst for revival in troubled times and not a constant source of distraction. C.S. Lewis once said, a proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. Let's finish the story for today. Verses 9 through 11. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. So Hannah says he will guard the feet of his faithful ones, which of course are his sons and daughters who rely not on their own strength, but his, because only he is able to truly prevail in times of trouble and only he is able to judge ultimately what happens in this world. And then at the end of the song, Hannah looks prophetically to the Christ, the Messiah, as she says, he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. That is Jesus Christ who will judge the ends of the earth, which shows uh, really an incredible depth of understanding on Hannah's part, the fact that she had come to terms 
through her own trouble with the reality that ultimately our victory over the enemy, that belongs to God. And he's the only one able to secure that victory, which means in times of trouble, we must turn to Christ, not to the government, not to the news reports, not to our supplies, not to medical cures or vaccines or warm weather or anything else we falsely put our hope in. Now, look, we may be thankful for some or all of those things. And in truth, we should be because those are some of the vehicles God uses to deliver his healing and rest and comfort and deliverance from trouble. But listen, the moment we turn to any of those things as our source of hope, well, then we're in big trouble. Right. And so I think it's very important today that we take stock of exactly what it is we've placed our hope in. Is your hope in politics? Is your hope in government? Is, is your hope in social policies? Is your hope in what you've stored up at home? Is your hope in the next medical breakthrough? Is your hope in winning the next argument? I don't know. What is your hope anchored in? Because what Hannah came to understand and what his word spells out is the fact that at the end of the day, come troubled times, our hope is in Jesus Christ alone, the unchanging, unwavering, incorruptible, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, perfectly holy and righteous sovereign king who has laid up for us in heaven a hope that cannot be taken away by any government or political power or social policy or difficult circumstance or virus or disease or any argument leveled against us or anything else, by the way, in this world. The author of Hebrews wrote, when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Hebrews 6, 17 through 20. You see, when your hope is truly in Jesus Christ, it becomes an anchor for your soul so that no matter how troubled the days may become, hope is never lost because in Christ we are never lost. When your soul is anchored in that hope of Christ, it shows up in your behavior. As you learn more and more and more about him, just as Hannah did, which is really what all of this is about. You see, you've been sent here, according to Jesus, to learn more about him so that we can become more like him, so that our behavior is different, not like the rest of the world, but different, more like Christ when we leave here than we were when we were sent here. And yet if our behavior is not ever changing, the more we increase in our knowledge of him, then listen, we've anchored our hope in something else, which always comes to light the moment trouble shows up at your door. That's when you can tell what a person's hope is truly anchored in, in troubled times. Okay, as Christians, we don't endure troubled times through feeble resignation. We don't just try to Hang on for dear life, hoping that somehow we'll make it through. And we dare not try to endure troubled times by our own arrogant strength. No, it is when we turn to Christ alone and the hope that can only be found in him, 
which is a hope, by the way, that transcends this world and the, the temporary afflictions that come with it. It is only then, over the long haul, that your capacity to carry out God's will for your life, bearing good fruit all along the way, even in the midst of the most troubled times, it actually increases. You understand what I'm saying? Your, your capacity to not just endure, but to actually thrive in times of trouble. Your capacity to thrive increases exponentially when you allow the hope of Christ to anchor your very soul, to occupy your mind, and to fill your heart no matter what is happening in this world. Okay, I, can, I, I, think, we can, I think we can probably all agree that we're experiencing some troubled times in our world and in our country today, no matter what you see as the actual problem. Listen, whether it's the, the virus itself or the panic caused by the virus or the media that seems to be fueling the panic caused by the virus or the economy that will surely suffer because of the panic fueled by the media over the virus, right? Listen, whatever you believe the real problem is doesn't matter nearly as much as what you believe the real solution is. Because what you actually believe about Jesus Christ will determine how you actually respond in times of trouble. You see, this world is all about self, which means the world's response is all about self-preservation. It's all about me first. But the church, we're supposed to be different. You and me, every motivation in our hearts, every word we speak, every action we take is supposed to point people to Jesus Christ, not back to ourselves. And, and so listen, we have a decision to make. We can act like the rest of the world who doesn't know Christ and look out for number one, you know, me and mine. Or we can make the most of this extraordinary opportunity that God has given us to point people to Jesus Christ. Because it is in troubled times that people are more likely to look for answers to what ails the human condition. It's in troubled times that people seek after truth. It's troubled times where people are most open to receive help from others. So look, I, you understand, I'm not telling you to be foolish. No, I'm not telling you to disregard common sense guidelines that help keep each other healthy. I wash my hands every day before dinner, long before the virus ever showed up. Wash your hands. Do the things we're supposed to do to stay healthy. I'm simply telling you, to remember what God has already done for you. Don't panic like the rest of the world. I'm telling you to humble yourself. Don't lash out at others like the rest of the world. And listen, no matter how troubled these times might be, if you will turn to Jesus Christ alone as your only source of hope, you won't have to fear like the rest of the world. Why? Because listen, He is a God when times are good. And he is our God in times of trouble. Let's pray.